Good morning. Man, y'all are getting better and better at that. Wow. Um, David, Alex, Leah, thank you for that this morning. Man, there's, you know, it's, it's always interesting to me why this stool won't stay. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what's interesting. It's interesting to me to see God work and, and move. And it's interesting for me to, to spend time during the week praying over a passage and thinking I have an idea of what the Lord's going to do on any given Sunday, only to be um, surprised isn't the right word. Pleasantly surprised, I guess is a good way, to see that there's so much more going on than what God allowed me to see during the week. And, and uh, there's a lot of things I want to I say about all of those things. This, this song, Come and Die, really um, kind of encapsulates, I think, the theme that the Lord has for us today. And I didn't even know it was going to be a theme yet. I know that Kara came up a while ago and shared her thankfulness to the church for loving them as they went through foster care. Um, I, I just want to say from my own personal experience, experience, there is no greater call to come and die than to be a foster parent. Um, and I don't say that to applaud myself, but to say thank you to the Meeks, to the Westbrooks, who, you know, it, you can go serve in another ministry area and it can be frustrating, it can be tiring, but then you get to go home. Right? But when you have a child in your home that desperately needs to be loved and to be cared for, there is no break. There is no respite. Yes. Three long years of fighting battles that you didn't necessarily ask for. Right? And man, what a great glimpse for us into what it means to be a follower of Christ. Today we're going to look at uh, the rest of chapter 1. In the, in the first chapter of Hebrews, and I want to remind us as we get started why this book was written. It's because the people that this, this, this letter was given to or this sermon was preached for were struggling. There were things going on around them that were the direct result of their choice to be obedient to God. And so today, as we have heard these testimonies, if we've heard from Alex, the, the sweet little things that God does to encourage us to, to Kara, talking about the difficulty, but how much the church has blessed them in the middle of that difficulty. We need all of those things as a people. God has designed us that way. Last week, we read verse three, and we spent some time um, thinking about and talking about the bigness of God. We, we talked about the fact that Jesus is God, that he sustains all things, that he sacrificed himself for us, and now he's seated in the place of honor on the throne in heaven. The author is making this incredible opening statement to the church in order to establish the basis for the encouragement that they ought to find in Christ. Today we're going to read verses 4 through 14, and, and I will say that most people include verse 4 in that first introductory section, but I purposely didn't do that for us. And the reason is, is that everything that follows verse 4 is, the, is the, the foundation upon which verse 4 stands. I wanted us to read it together so we can see both the theological statement that's being made and the references that support that theology. He makes this statement about Jesus being superior to angels and that everything to follow it is proof of that concept. And listen, you may think in your mind, why does that matter? 
But there was a tactic that was going on from the religious leaders in the Jewish community trying to convince the followers of Christ that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, but that He was an angel. And if you think about it, that's a pretty smart tactic because think about what that does. It allows those that are struggling in their belief, the struggle uh, from the separation of their families due to their choice to follow Christ, it allows them to say that yes, Jesus was here, and yes, Jesus did amazing things, right? It gives them a, a chance to get off the hook. Rather than trying to convince people that Jesus was a complete fraud, this argument allowed them to continue to believe that Jesus did great things, but it was because he was an angel, not the Son of God. And under this argument, they didn't have to explain away all the things that Jesus did. Miracles wouldn't be a big deal for an angel. I want us to read this passage together this morning, and then we're going to break down the role of angels briefly, and why there was temptation to believe this lie. And then we're going to talk about the truth of, of who Jesus is. Okay? So the three points that we're going to make today, I want it to bring us back to this idea that Jesus is greater than his creation. This is a significant truth for us. Jesus is greater than his creation. So let's read verses 4 through 14, and then we'll dive in. It says, so he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and tell all God's angels to worship him. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the Son, your throne, God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like clothing. But you are the same, and your years will never end. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? Now I'll be honest with you guys. Angels are not a topic that comes up in conversation for me very often. I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe it is, okay? In fact, in thinking about this this week, I, I asked myself, I kind of did a, a deep dive into my own life and said, how often have I heard somebody teach on angels? And I'll be honest, it's not often. Don't get me wrong, I, I know that we, we read about them in the Christmas story and we sing songs like angels we have heard on high, but I just kind of gloss over that, right? It's just a character and a narrative that I've heard a lot of times. It's obvious, however, that the understanding the nature of angels and their relationship to Jesus was of, of utmost importance to the author of Hebrews. There were some significant differences that he wanted to draw and he wanted people to understand. And this is the focal point of the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. We spent the last few weeks going through what is considered the introduction but the remainder of Hebrews chapter 1 is dedicated to proving that Jesus is superior to angels. Therefore, it goes without saying 
that we need to learn about angels if we're going to understand the purpose and the application of chapter 1. I spent some time this week studying commentaries and theologically books, theological books to kind of expand my own knowledge and understanding. Um, and I'll be honest, this is not a topic I ever thought I would preach on, right? It just didn't, it didn't come up in school ever, all right? I spent my whole life in church, and I don't know that I've ever heard anybody else teach on it. While all that study was fun and I learned a lot this week, that's not the focus of our time this morning. This is not where God wants to spend most of our time. We're going to briefly look at it, but there's so much more that I could say, but that's not our purpose for today. So today I want to just give you some highlights, and I've compiled my notes. If you'd like to, to look into that and, and dive a little deeper yourself, I'm, I'm happy to give you those, okay? But here's what we need to understand today, is that angels are created beings whose purpose is to serve God. Angels are created beings whose purpose is to serve God. At the mention of angels, it's likely that your mind kind of swirled a little bit with different things that you've heard over the course of your life. I was thinking about this, that this week. Um, I don't know if any of you guys ever saw one of these, but I knew a lot of people growing up that had a little, it was a little like metal pen that they, everybody would put on their visor in their car that said, don't drive faster than your guardian angel can fly. Anybody ever see that? Give me a hand raise. Yeah, a couple of y'all? Okay, all right. Um, we've all seen, you know, angels on Valentine's cards, you know, the little naked baby looking things with the bow and arrow uh, that want to shoot you with love or something, I don't know. Um, there was also the movie, I grew up with this movie, I cannot tell you how many times I watched this on VHS, which was Field of Angels, great, classic Danny Glover movie, anybody? Okay, a couple people, all right. Uh, my kids watched Tom and Jerry. There's a new animated seri- or movie that just came out. And, of course, they had the classic devil and angel on the shoulders trying to convince. I, I think it was Tom. Was it Tom they were trying to convince what to do? So here's, here's what we know. Pop culture and other denominations have varying ideas, forms, roles that angels play, um, both in the spiritual and the physical realm. What we see in Scripture, both in the Old and the New Testament, is that angels basically serve four functions. And so I want to cover these four real quickly, and it's going to kind of give us a basis for our understanding of this passage. Firstly, angels continuously worship and praise God. That's their number one function. Number two, angels communicate God's message to man. Number three, angels minister to believers. And number four, angels will be God's agents in the final earthly judgments and second coming. Now, if you like, I've got about, uh, it would have taken me about 20 minutes to read all the supporting passages where those four come from. So if you'd like that, I can give it to you. But angels serve important roles in the kingdom of God, but they are in no way worthy of our worship and praise. And we need to make that clear. They're not superior to God or Jesus in any way. They were created by God to fulfill a role of service. Now, you may know someone in your life that has um, had an unhealthy obsession with angels. And what I mean by unhealthy is that they spend more time devoted to understanding angels or saints or whatever you want to call those than they do spending that time learning about the person of Jesus. And this is not a new, t- new temptation. And let's be honest, angels seem pretty incredible, right? I mean, they're way different than we are. They have powers that we don't have. Consider the time uh, when we see angels mentioned in Scripture. Often it's, it's, they lead with, don't be afraid. Like if that's, if you have to walk into a room and the first thing you say is, don't be afraid, there's something wrong, right? That's not normal. Angels are, they're, they're, they're different, right? 
We, we see times in Scripture where people see angels and we look at their responses. One of my, the first ones that came to mind and one that I, I remember reading often as a child and as an adult is Isaiah chapter 6. Look at that with me. Verses 1 through 7. Isaiah said this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. That's angels, by the way. Seraphim were standing above him, and they each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And the foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with thongs. With tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Now, that has touched your lips. Your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Listen, he mentions that he sees the Lord's hymn. He knows God's there, but what does he see? He just sees the hymn. If you don't know what the hymn is, it's the, like, this is the hymn of a pair of jeans. It's the tiny little portion that is insignificant. But in the temple, he sees the hymn, and then he sees these two angels. And what are they doing? They're worshiping. They are standing there saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. While all of that is important to the story, the main point is not that angels are mighty. The takeaway from Isaiah's experience is that God is calling him to bring a message to God's people. These created beings are not being worshipped. They are the ones worshipping. The angels were worshipping God and they were doing His bidding. Because they are so different from us, angels have captivated the minds of people. But that's not what their purpose was. Anybody see um, the mo- or the, read the book, Where the Red Fern Grows? Anybody read that in school? Raise your hand. I know my kids have read it. Okay. Do you remember how... Oh, shoot. What's the main character's name? Having a brain fart. Anybody? What's the main character's name? The little boy. I'm, I can't remember. I remember Dan and Ann. That's the two dogs. Do you remember how he caught his first raccoon to train Dan and Ann? Anybody? He drills a hole in a log, he drops a coin in there, and then he drops two nails in at an angle. And the purpose of that is the raccoon would see the coin, he's captivated by it, he would reach in and grab it. When he did, his paw would ball up and then he couldn't get his hand out past the nail. And raccoons are just dumb enough that he won't let go until the guy comes along, knocks it on the head, and now he has a raccoon to train his dogs with. Okay? Here's the point I want to make is that we are curious people, right? People in general, humans are curious. And when we see things that are shiny, we're drawn to them and they captivate us and sometimes we get trapped by them. So the takeaway is we're trash pandas, okay? Yeah, you're welcome. That was for my kids. Listen, this is a classic move on the enemy's part. It's to take something that God has created Something that's wonderful. Something that we may not even understand. And to dangle it in front of us in such a way that we are drawn away from God Himself. There's a temptation to compromise truth for comfort. This is the next point I want to make today. We are tempted by the enemy 
to compromise truth for comfort. He takes that shiny thing and dangles it in front of us. During the introduction, I talked about the effort of the religious leaders to convince the followers of Christ that Jesus was an angel and not the prophesied Messiah. And it may sound odd to you and perhaps cause you to to judge those that, that would fall for that. But consider their lives for a moment. Remember the story that we watched, that we listened to about the young man who lived in Rome at the time that this letter was read to the church. Remember that his grandfather was the leader of the Jewish temple. And when he became a follower of Christ, when he became a Christian, which by the way was a derogatory term, his family completely disowned him. He lost his job as an apprentice. And when he would see his family on the streets, they would turn and walk away. They wouldn't even greet him. And everyone, including the slaves around them, would ridicule him. Now look, I know that story is not a real story. That was not a real person. But the context in which that story was framed was very real. Put your place, yourself in that place for a moment. Think about how miserable it must have been for those believers. For them, by conceding that Jesus was simply an angel, they would be accepted back into their families, their status and their livelihood would instantly be renewed, and the comfort and security that they once knew would be back. That's how temptation works. It says, look, I I know that this thing over here is important, but this is better. Temptation offers momentary comfort or pleasure at the expense of of eternal joy. Listen, this is, this is how it started in the garden. Remember? God made the garden, put everything in there that Adam and Eve could ever want. Said, eat of all of it. Enjoy it. But don't eat from this one. And what did the enemy do? He fixated them on the one thing God said they couldn't do. And they followed Him. Guess what, church? The same thing is being offered for the early church and the same thing is being offered for us. As we read this passage, it's easy to to respond and simply agree that Jesus is greater than angels and move on with our life. But what would we gain from that? You wouldn't be wrong in that assessment. Jesus is greater than the angels. But you'd miss out on the greater purpose of what God has in this text for us. There is always going to be a temptation for us to sacrifice truth for comfort. The enemy is not going to take that out of our field of vision. In thinking about this, I'm reminded of the story of the prodigal son. I want to read a portion of this today. Look with me at Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 17. Because we're going to see the prodigal son get his eyes fixated on something that he wants. And he's going to chase it and push everything else aside. You're familiar with this story. Look at me. Let's start in verse 11. We'll read through 17. He, He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me a share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck the country and he had nothing. Then he went back to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am, dying of hunger. Listen, the son sacrificed his relationship with his father. 
He got fixated on the fact that he had this big inheritance coming. And, and in case you've, you've forgotten, you don't get an inheritance until your parents pass away. That's how it works. And rather than, than waiting for his parent to die, which is a weird thing to say, he went and asked for it in advance. And he took that inheritance and he went and squandered it. And whether we like to admit it or not, all of us are like the prodigal son. We want to trade the life of security and love that God has provided for us through Jesus so that we can venture out on our own and do what we want to do. So that we can live life the way that we want to live. And the result of following the temptation is suffering. Anytime that we give up what God has provided for us so that we can go after something that we want, we're giving up on the best that we could ever hope for in order to gain a trinket, something that's not lasting, something that will fade. Hear me though, don't let the enemy push you further away from God. If you find yourself in the midst of that, don't sit there feeling guilty. While we're aware of our sin and rebellion, we also know the end of that story of the prodigal son. Which brings us to our last point that Jesus was God in flesh. And this is significant. Jesus is greater than the angels because he made the final required sacrifice. And he has the authority to forgive. No angel has either sacrificed nor has the authority to forgive us. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus is showing us that even though we fall to temptation, we are being welcomed home by the Father. Look at the end of that story, verses, eight, verses 18 through 24. The Son says, I'll get up and go to my Father and say to Him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in Your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called Your Son. Make me like one of Your hired workers. So He got up and went to His Father. But while the Son was still a long way off, His Father saw Him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw His arms around His neck and kissed Him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out one of the best robes and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Just like the father in this parable that Jesus is telling, God welcomes us back home with open arms because of the life and death of Jesus. Because when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sin anymore. As believers, he sees the blood of Christ which washes us clean, who removes that sin from our life. This is the point that the author of Hebrews is making in these first three verses, is that Jesus is the manifestation of God on earth. He is the exact image of God. He is perfect in his likeness. And in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. The author is making the case that never in the Old Testament do we see God elevating an angel to that status. It's not possible. Any created thing can never be greater than its creator God tells us in Psalm 104 verse 4 some of the ways that he uses the angels he says he makes his messengers winds he ministers um, a flaming fire look in just a few short verses the author dismantles this idea that Jesus was simply an angel he gives us clear examples of how God uses those angels and the status of Jesus in reference to the father 
The rest of the chapter is a capstone to this whole argument that Jesus is, cre- is greater than all the created things. Do you know what a capstone is? A capstone, if you're building an arch or a dome, is the very last piece in the middle. And it holds all the rest of it together. And so, in this introduction, the author of Hebrews is making this statement about who Jesus is. And he's directly defending against this argument that Jesus was simply an angel. Look at verse 8 through 13 again. I want you to see this again. But to the Son, you, your throne, God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with oil of joy beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like clothing. But you are the same, and your eyes will never end. Now, which of, to which of the angels he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool? The author of Hebrews is bringing up all these Old Testament passages to remind the people what they've heard all their life. They knew these stories. They had heard these passages before. And he's bridging the gap between what they've always heard and what they've now experienced. The goal of the religious leaders was to tear down the church by convincing them that Jesus was anything other than what he actually was. And the goal of the author of Hebrews is to remind the church that Jesus is the Son of God. This particular literary form in verses 5-14 through is called a string of pearls in which Old Testament teachers would string together all of these Old Testament passages in order to prove a point that they were trying to make. And the author is using their own technique against them, and I love that. They're saying Jesus was just an angel, and the author is saying, I'm going to take your text, the thing that you say is the Word of God, and I'm going to prove to you through your text that that is not the case. The hearers, the listeners of this could then take and compare what they've always understood, the scripture that they've heard, and they can compare it with the things that they've heard about Jesus from the people who walked with him, who knew him well, and with their own experiences. Because remember, the Holy Spirit is living inside of them. And so as they're hearing this passage, the Holy Spirit is affirming in their hearts and in their minds the truth about who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Son of God, the heir, the creator, the sustainer, and superior to all other things. This is the testimony of the Father spoken through the prophets about the person of Jesus. This was the promised Messiah. He's telling the church, listen, you're not crazy. The things that you've heard, the things you've experienced, those are real. All the prophecies that they heard growing up in the temple were true, and they were talking about Jesus. They've committed themselves not just to another prophet or angel, but to the promised one that God said would come. The author is connecting the dots from their past to their present, and he's making the person of Jesus real for them. He's saying, look, I know that you're feeling persuaded. I know that that argument seems like it's going to be comfortable. But let me tell you the truth. Last week in in Life Group, we began to share our own personal stories. And I'm going to share a bit of mine with you today because there's a part of it that really stands out in my mind that is really applicable to our text today. When I was about, I I, I want to say 12, this is not one of those, I remember the day and the time, I was about 12 and I know that because I was 
old enough to drive the tractor by myself. That'll come in the story in a minute, okay? I remember sitting in church. I think it was a Sunday morning. I was sitting with my parents. Um, but Eddie, my cousin, if you've ever met Eddie, he was my partner in crime. Um, and by partner in crime, I meant he always told all the things I did to my parents. Um, but he was there with me. But since he confessed, he didn't get in trouble and I did. Anyway, another story. So Eddie's sitting beside me. And I remember the pastor talking about what Jesus had done for us. I don't remember the words, but I remember the feelings. I remember knowing in that moment that I was a sinner and that I needed a savior. And I remember bumping Eddie with my elbow and I leaned over and whispered, because if you talk loud, dad would thump you on the back of the ear. I said, we need to go do this. And Eddie said, uh-uh, I ain't getting up. We'll get in trouble. And in that moment, I felt like it was worth it to risk getting in trouble to go talk to the pastor about this thing that he was talking about. And so I did. I got up and I went and talked to the pastor. And I remember praying and asking Jesus to be my Lord. Now, fast forward a couple hours, we're back at home, it's a Sunday afternoon, and I'm out on the tractor disking up part of the pasture, okay? And I remember my mom and dad walking out to the pasture, and I remember this, it was significant because my mom never came to the pasture. She was like Lord of the inside of the house, and dad did everything outside, and they didn't cross paths in terms of their responsibilities. But dad and mom come out, and they, I remember them telling me that they're proud of me. I remember uh, telling them that what I had done was significant. But that's all I really remember. Now, fast forward a couple of years, and, and I, I would like to say that everything was different from that point forward, that I was a different person, but I wasn't. I was still mischievous. I was still in trouble a lot for doing things I knew I shouldn't do. And we got this new youth pastor, and he came in, and he began to explain to us what it meant to have the Holy Spirit living in us. He showed us what it looked like to really pray and talk to God or what it meant to worship and how to engage the Holy Spirit as we did so. I remember the, the song this morning that, that we sang, The Old Rugged Cross. I don't know about you guys, but I didn't grow up with that song. I'd never heard it until I was in high school. And I heard it because we were fumbling around, I was in choir, and we were fumbling around through the library of all the old songs that we had in there. And I remember somebody pulling it out and going, oh man, this is one of my favorites. And I was like, what is that? I'd never heard it before. And so the choir director played it for us and we, we sang it. And I remember thinking, wow, this is incredible. And it was at that point in my life that God began to work in me to reveal himself through songs in choir class or through um, the relationships that I had with my youth group about who Jesus was. You see, I knew that I had a need for a Savior. I knew that I was a sinner, and I knew that if I prayed this prayer, that God would forgive me, right? But it was, as I call, fire insurance. I didn't know the person of Jesus yet. I had not had any real personal interactions with Him. And as that began to happen, I began to change. I remember coming home every Wednesday night from church and my mom would always say, how was it? And I always responded the same way. It was awesome. Because all of a sudden, all of a sudden, everything that I'd read in Scripture began to make sense. All of a sudden, this, this thing that Scripture says that would live inside of me, I could feel it. And I began to understand what it meant for Him to, to speak to me and to be present in my life. God was always there. I just didn't know it. I didn't know how to recognize Him. And listen, I know that in many ways my story is not unique. I'm not the only one who's experienced that. You may have a similar story of growing up in or around church but never really knowing God. 
And listen, I want to say to you today, if that is you, if the Holy Spirit is pricking your heart right now, saying that that is where you are, please come talk to me. Because there is nothing greater than knowing the Holy Spirit and being able to walk with Him daily. The church that this letter was sent to needed the encouragement that the things that they had been taught, the things that they believed, the things that they were experiencing were real and true. Because they had all these people around them. People that had power, people that had authority, people that said that they loved them, that told them that they were worthless because they believed in Jesus. Church, they needed encouragement because life was hard. They needed encouragement because they accepted Jesus and the response they got from the world around them was hatred. We talked about this last week and we need to see this again. That we can't really know God until we understand how much greater He is than we are. And that brings us back to our main point today, that Jesus is greater than created things. Jesus is greater than the angels, and He's greater, greater than, than we are. Until we see that God is greater than we are, we, we, we won't think that we have a need for God. And the reality is that we desperately do. If we didn't need Jesus, He wouldn't have come. He wouldn't have died on the cross for us. Jesus is greater than the angels. Because He's their Creator. And Jesus is greater than us because He's our Creator. And the story that we have to share with people is to say, look, this is my experience with God. This is how I've experienced the Holy Spirit in my life as I've walked with Him day by day. And that's a story worth sharing. It's one that people needed to hear. They need to know that our Creator loves us and He desires to have a personal relationship with them. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for revealing yourself to me. God, thank you for working in the life of our church. It's my hope, my desire, and I know that it's yours, that we would know you more and more every day. God, that as we encounter the temptations of this earth, the things that the enemy would use to draw us away from you, Father, I ask that you would help us to immediately recognize those. That you would redirect us back towards yourself. Help us to know you, Father, and to find our greatest sense of joy and satisfaction in knowing you and not in chasing the things that we, the, the world thinks or the world says that will make us happy. Father, help us to experience your joy even in the midst of, of difficult, difficult times. Father, we need encouragement just like this church did. We need to know that you are greater than we are. Father, give us daily reminders of your goodness. Help us to pursue you and to know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.